So how many of you had an Etch-A-Sketch as a kid? Remember those? You know, the great thing about an Etch-A-Sketch is you could shake it real hard and start over if you messed up, right? How many of us would like to have a do-over in life? I can remember as a kid, we would play baseball behind a friend's house, and it was a big enough field that we could do so, but there was a big tree right in the middle of it, right in the middle of center field. And inevitably, somebody would hit the ball up in that tree and it'd get lost. Anytime that happened, everyone in unison just said, do over. And whoever was batting went back to home plate, the count went to zero, and everything just started over again. Wouldn't it be nice to have a do-over in life? How many times have you said or heard someone say, if I had it to do all over again? You know, certainly... Most times, hindsight is better than foresight. Many of the things we learn in life, we don't learn until we've gone through them, until we've experienced them. It's kind of a, a rule of thumb in our life that if you want to learn something really fast, do it the hard way or mess up, and you learn how not to do it. Still, many of us, many Christians, wish that they had a do-over, that they could wipe the slate clean. I mean, you think about it. What if you maxed your credit cards out and you could just take them and shake them like an Etch-A-Sketch and they'd go back to zero? What if you could take back those words that you said in the heat of a moment and things that you wish you'd never said? If you could just shake your head real hard and it would clear all of them and the effect that they had on other people. It'd be nice to have that kind of clean slate. What if life were like an Etch-A-Sketch? You know, so often... We talk about having a do-over in life, and we talk about second chances, not realizing even that we have that opportunity each and every day, that we serve a God of second chances, that we have the ultimate do-over. And in fact, if you're like me, you've needed more than one do-over. You've certainly needed more than one second chance. You've needed multiple second chances in life. And it is possible with God to have a do-over. And I know this because of what I read in Scripture. And you might think that we would go to the New Testament somewhere, but actually I want us to go back to the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 25. Here we have a do-over. Starting in verse 8, You are also to count off seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, so that you have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn, Abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all through your land. You shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the 50th year as, as a jubilee. You shall not sow nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vines. For it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. On this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. This is a concept. Back in the Old Testament, this jubilee, it occurred every 50 years. The idea was, you see, the Israelites weren't much different than us. They got in over their heads. Sometimes they, uh, they got in debt. And what would you do if you couldn't pay off the debt? Well, you'd sell some of your property, some of your land, some of your possessions. If that didn't cover the debt, you sold yourself. 
you and your family would enter into slavery in order to pay off the debt. But the year of Jubilee, the 50th year, meant that everything went back to zero. You got a clean slate. The slate was like clean, like an Etch-a-Sketch, right? And so in that 50th year, the property would turn back to the landowners. If the landowners weren't around anymore, if they had died, then it would go to their family. Any debt was canceled out. And if you were living in slavery in order to pay off that debt, then you were now free. You got to return home. It was the ultimate do-over in a physical sense. God did this for a couple of reasons. One reason is sort of kind of like a modern-day antitrust uh, law like we would think of. The idea was we didn't want, God didn't want certain landowners to have a monopoly. He didn't want just a few people to have all the wealth and all of the land and all the property. But the ultimate reason for doing this was so that people could have a second chance, so that they could have a do-over. Now, that system, of course, was in the Old Testament. We don't live under the old law. We live under a new covenant. But we see the same thing spelled out for us in the New Testament. Notice what is written in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. It says, And he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim uh, release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, as you can guess, Jesus is talking about prophecy of the coming Messiah. He applies it to himself here, of course. And there is also a quote from Isaiah chapter 61, which is a reference to what we just spoke about. It's a reference to Jubilee. In fact, the phrase to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord is a reference to that 50th year. The coming of Jesus affords us the same opportunity that the year of Jubilee afforded the Israelite people, only in a spiritual sense, not in a physical sense. And we don't have to wait 50 years for it. It is available to us at any time. The gospel is readily available to all those who respond. I want you to notice that in this passage in Luke 4, it tells us that Jesus was anointed to preach the gospel. Now, we know the gospel is good news, but why is it good news? Well, notice what chapter 4 states. It is a release, it is a recovery, and it is a setting free. A captive gets his freedom back. A blind man regains his sight. A man who is oppressed gets out from under that ruler that was so tyrannical and such a dictator, oppressing him. Under the old law, the good news was literal. The land was released. The slaves were set free. The people could once again see things from a perspective of freedom. But those living in this age, the Christian age, enjoy a spiritual jubilee. A release from the, from the burden of sin. Freedom that is enjoyed in Jesus Christ. The spiritually blind are given sight. Jubilee was and still is a beautiful illustration of the mercy 
and grace of God. It's a, a mercy and kindness that we don't fully grasp in a human way always because God is more merciful than man. I mean, we see this illustrated for us over and over again. You think about when David took a census and he wasn't supposed to, right? He was going to have to endure punishment. But David points out that God is more merciful than man. God gives him three options as far as what punishment he was going to take. He said, you can have seven years of famine, you can have three months of defeat by your enemies, or you can have three days of pestilence. And listen to what David says. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. David knew full well that God was more merciful than man. Do you realize that there are over 200 verses that describe the merciful nature of God? Many view God as jaded or ruthless or tyrannical from the Old Testament. David calls him merciful. Even when God must punish, he doesn't delight in it. Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 reads, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? God would rather pardon a sinner than condemn one. He prefers kindness and mercy, but he will unleash his wrath. And if we are the object of that wrath, we have no one to blame but ourselves. It is the fact that God is patient and long-suffering with us, that he is merciful. Even those who are living in wickedness, are receiving both the mercy and someday the wrath of God if they don't turn around. There is mercy for the one who is a sinner, even if he refuses to turn around. Each day that he is allowed to live and have the opportunity to turn around is a sign of the mercy of God. But ultimately, if he's refused to put on Christ, he will endure the wrath of God, and it will be no one's fault but his own. He'll have no one to blame but himself. I'm reminded of the story of the, of the poor woman who sees the ocean for the first time. She looks out upon the ocean and she weeps bitterly. Someone standing nearby asks her why she is crying and she says, because I've never seen something that there was enough of. God's grace is bigger than that ocean. His mercy can cover any amount of sin. I hear people say sometimes, well, I, I've done too much wrong. God could never forgive me. You ever talk to somebody and they say that? I got to tell you, I take issue with that. Because it sells my God short. The God I serve, the God that we are here to worship tonight, is a God whose grace and mercy is big enough to cover any sin. You're not the exception to the rule. Paul said, I am the chief of sinners, so you don't get that title. No matter how much wrong you have done in your life, God is bigger than your sin. His mercy and grace is bigger than any offense that you may have, any debt that you owe, Jesus Christ, and his blood covers it. God's mercy is greater than any ocean, and there's plenty of it. Sometimes we wonder, we say, how can God love us that much? We say things like, there's, there's no way 
There's no way he could ever forgive me. There's no way he could ever love me that much. But that is a failure to recognize the length and the breadth and the depth of God's grace and mercy. If you want an opportunity to start all over, you have to recognize the quality of this love and this mercy that God provides. If you want it, you reach for it. And of course, God's mercy is not for anyone or any situation. You realize that, right? You have to qualify for it. What do you have to do to qualify for it? Well, you have to be a captive, you have to be blind, and or you have to be downtrodden. That's what Luke 4 says. I think that covers just about all of us at one time or another in our lives, right? Captive, blind, downtrodden. You know, that is whom the good news is for. I mean, Jesus didn't come to save those who didn't need a doctor. He said, I come for those who need the physician, those who need healing. It's the guy on, on rock bottom. It's the guy who, who can't even see the light at the end of the tunnel because he's so far down. He's made such a mess of his life. It's the lady who's living in dire straits, captive in a prison of sin, and self-deprecation. It's the person who feels as though there's just absolutely no hope, and maybe they've done it all to themselves. They've completely destroyed their life through whatever means. You're captive, you're blind, you're downtrodden. It's the loners, the losers, the fifth wheels, the dregs of society. That's who this is for. You know, it's like the the rather arrogant man that came up to the preacher after the sermon. And he said, you talk about the weight of sin. How much does sin weigh? 10, 20, 30 pounds? The preacher looks at the cocky individual and he says, if you put a 400-pound weight on a dead corpse, would the corpse feel it? And the man says, well, of course not. He's dead. The preacher looks at the young man and says, exactly. Not everyone struggles with sin. Not everyone feels the weight or the burden of sin. They quite like it. They've lived so long in a sinful existence, it doesn't bother them. Not everyone is qualified to receive this because they're not willing to. They're stubborn. They're hard-hearted. Those that are too proud to admit that they need a Savior are those who are not ready. Pride is the number one thing that keeps people out of heaven. It's interesting that the middle letter in pride is I because that's what it's all about. It's all about I. It's all about me. You know, pride's an interesting thing. It's colorless. It's odorless. It's non-fattening, yet it's the hardest thing to swallow, isn't it? It's the number one thing that keeps people out of heaven. And so many people refuse to turn to Christ and do something about their sin problem because they've got too much pride. I've counseled with individuals who were close to death. I've talked to them about the state of their soul. I've pleaded with them to do something about their sinful existence. They are lost, and they're going to enter into eternity lost, and yet none of my words infiltrated or penetrated their hard heart. How sad that is, that someone would choose to die without a Savior. Please understand, Jesus does not force himself on people. He does not twist anyone's arm. He doesn't even beg and plead. He knocks. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Jesus doesn't kick the door down. He doesn't barge right in. He knocks. And he waits. Are you going to let him in? Invite him in. Are you tired of being controlled by sin? Are you tired of being knocked down? Are you worn out from serving the devil? Are you ready to be set free? You know, sometimes people come up to me after a sermon like the one this morning and they say, does it, does it bother you that, that nobody answers the invitation after a sermon like that? Yeah, you know, I, I thought about going over to Robert and Blake and uh, uh, who was it, Brad. They all came down at that point because they had different announcements to make. And I thought, you know, would y'all act like you're answering the invitation to not give a little more emphasis? But the truth of the matter is, many times people do answer the invitation. They just don't come forward. Sometimes they answer the invitation two or three months later. I've had people even a year or so down the road say, remember that sermon? And I'm like, I really don't. But they remembered it. And now they're ready to do something about it. So I, I understand that maybe, maybe you're at rock bottom and you're not ready at this moment to do something about it. Maybe you want to process this and think about it, but don't wait too long. Don't live as a captive. Remember the Liberty Bell? If you took history at all, you remember the Liberty Bell and, and how it developed a crack over the years and now it's, it's silent, of course. It's quiet. It doesn't ring. Do you realize that on the Liberty Bell there is an inscription that makes reference to Leviticus 25.10? The scripture we read at the beginning? The scripture that talks about the year of Jubilee? That's the scripture that is referenced on the inscription on the the, uh, Liberty Bell. Now, because it's gone quiet because of that crack, that kind of goes along with what we've talked about. You know, the old law has gone silent. I mean, we can still learn from the old law, don't get me wrong, but we're not under it. But yet the freedom we have in Christ still rings true every day. And if you don't know that freedom, what are you waiting on? Does it make any sense to live life as a captive, blind and burdened, when you can do something about it so readily and so easily? What's holding you back? Is it pride? You need to get over that. And you need the freedom that is found in Jesus Christ. So you may not answer the invitation right now. Maybe you want to talk to me later. Maybe you want to talk later this week. Maybe, maybe this is something that you, you mull over and we talk about later. Don't wait too long. Enjoy freedom. Come now as we stand and as we sing.